You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, January 28th, 2022. This is episode number 204. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 24,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today we're talking about an Oregon psilocybin equity bill. New York is set to release regulations by the spring. Thailand becoming the first Asian nation to decriminalize. A recall in California. Cannabis gangs in Rotherham. Medical cannabis in New York gets expanded. Using hemp to clean up PFAS compounds on tribal lands and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hand if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up on the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might hear the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis, a veteran in the cannabis industry and always ready to use her experience to guide others. The show wouldn't be what it is today with her without her expert leadership. Nicole, what have you got for us today? Well, thank you for the lovely introduction, Susan. And my headline today just kind of comes in with my feelings of, holy fuck, thank God it's Friday. Um, Well, Oregon lawmakers are filing a psilocybin equity bill as the state implements legal use program. And I just want to say this week has made me want to macro dose by the end of this day. So excited to hear what's going on. This is reported by Marijuana Moment from Kyle Yeager, who we report a lot of his headlines. So Uh, one of our favorite authors. As Oregon prepares to implement its first-of-its-kind legal psilocybin services program, lawmakers have taken to a proactive step to ensure that equity is built into the policy change with the new bill. The bimensural unit with uh, Senator Lawrence Spencer and Republican Wincy Campos would create a 15-member task force. Um, Oh, actually, guys, I actually have to jump. I'm super sorry. Uh, This is very not right, but I have to jump because I have a cash pickup I got to handle right now. Sorry about that, Susan. That's okay. We'll come back to you when you get that cash handled. It's a problem in the industry, and we talk about it all the time. 
and here it is live. Um, so we're going to jump up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads that incorporate cannabis to enhance their parenting. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got today, Rico? Well, we don't get much realer than that. So <laughs> big shout out to Nicole, getting it done. So my story's coming out of Vermont and uh, the Waterbury Roundabout. Wu-Tang Clan members help launch cannabis industry at Zen Barn. So uh, it's been widely known since the early 1990s that the Wu-Tang Clan ain't been nothing to fuck with. Now that Vermont is officially moving into the adult use uh, arena, the Green Mountain State wants uh, some of that respect put back on their name as well. This is why the services of the legendary Wu-Tang Clan, Swartzman, Capadonna, and Inspector Deck have been tapped to help ensure things go down smoothly. Popular restaurant and live music event venue Zen Barn, located in Waterbury Center, will be partnering with Sensi Magazine to host a music food networking festival aiming to bring together New England consumers and operators from February 3rd to the 5th in celebration of Vermont's new cannabis regulations going into effect. The main event will be Friday, February 4th, featuring the two Wu-Tang lyricists, a live band, and special guests. Zen Barn and Zen Barn Farms co-owner founder uh, and founder Noah Fishman says the town of Waterbury is well positioned to be a premier destination for cannabis, just like it has become for craft beer. He did not comment on individual insurance policies festival uh, for festivals attendees, as it appears they will, in fact, have to protect their own necks. Speaking of Capadonna and Inspector Deck, the duo is launching their own cannabis brands in Massachusetts, and Fishman is eager to bring in more crossover talent like theirs to tour the Vermont cannabis scene and help establish a more welcoming and laid-back vibe that neighboring Massachusetts and New York do not have. The event kicks off next Thursday, February 3rd, with a free show by local blues artist Dave Keller, uh, Sensi's business networking series Sensi Connects will be going from 6 to 8 p.m. on Friday as a precursor to Vermont hip-hop acts opening for Capadonna and Inspected Deck. The Saturday festivities will continue with a food and drinks um, ceremony accompanied by the obligatory uh, local stoner fest reggae tribute to Bob Marley. As an East Coast 80s baby and fair, as a, and a child of the 90s, I was a huge Wu-Tang fan growing up. And if I was still out there, there's no way that I'd miss this thing. Uh, glad to see that the Assassins are continuing to expand their legal cannabis realm and are now knowing more of their history as underground weed dealers thanks to the uh, binge-watching Wu-Tang The American Saga. It makes me even happier knowing that they're not just another celebrity namesake trying to make a buck off of the culture uh, that they know nothing about. This is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad on the streets for State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Susan. Jason, can you sing some Wu Tang for us? Well, well, you know, funny you say that because I was thinking in my head, do Wu Tang fans sing Wu Tang fans? Ain't nothing to fuck with, Rico. No, we don't. Well, you guys should. Um, anyways, I did want to talk about Waterbury, though, okay, because I happen to know a thing or two about Waterbury. Um, uh, my, my, one of my, 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 uh, gr- my grandparents and my mom was uh, raised, raised in Vermont, and so I used to go to Vermont every summer and, and, and visit out there. And when people would say some crazy-ass off-the-wall shit, my grandma would always say it's time to send them to Waterbury. And the reason she would say that is because that Waterbury is where the mental institution 
was in Vermont. And so that's where all the crazies go. Cash rules everything around me. Cream, Cream. money, dollar, 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 dollar. Sorry, if Jason wasn't going to sing Wu-Tang, I had to jump in on that one. I think we had two Wu-Tang references this week by me. We had the Wu-Gu on the the Chinese story that I had on Monday. Then we got Wu-Tang to end the week off, too. Do do they know about that Wu-Gu thing? Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Yeah, Priscilla actually... Go ahead. If you, have, if you have a Wu-Tang fan named Sue, would she be known as Sue Wu? <laughs> Only if she's a bleh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Priscilla actually helped them with uh, um, their product, Wu-Gu, a couple of years ago. I remember they were um, pushing a, I think it was like a, a topical, a cannabis topical called Wu-Gu. And um, it's also um, uh, a Chinese phrase, uh, Wu-Gu. I think it's like slang for cannabis. I can't remember. Don't mark me on that. I'm going to look it up from my story earlier this week. I don't think but, it was slang. I think it means cannabis. Does it mean cannabis? I think so. Where's Priscilla? Yeah, it was no. a translation from the original, from the Chinese <laughs> is what it was. Yeah, and, and and I didn't even know that at all when their product came out a few years ago. Um I think it's like a, a topical gel or something like that, THC gel for pain relief. You know, th- there are so many brands that are searching for a story, like they're making up a story so that their brand can be interesting. And look at that. They've just got such a deep story there. Yeah. Fun, uh, fun fact, like Wu-Tang Clan, I believe they have the most diverse vocabulary of any rap artist and rap uh, group of all time. How did we know that? Very, very I think they have the most funny. members, too. Have the most members too, Rico. Wait, 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 Rico. What did you say? They have the most diverse vocabulary. Yeah, Genius dot com. Is that through Grammarly too? Did they? For Oops. sure, not through Grammarly. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. All right. Well, All if right. you look at it, Wu Tang and like Cypress Hill have been the original bands, like from the beginning, that have been like representing and still are like putting their money where their mouth is, especially Wu Tang. So yeah. great story. Yeah, they should have their own Grammarly. They should have Woo Grammarly. We have Ebonics already, Christopher. Oh my God! Oh no, God! No, our, no, our, Jason, take, our, o- take over, Nicole. I'm coming back with my story. Sorry about that abrupt exit, y'all. I really appreciate everyone's patience with me on that. Um, my headline again is coming out of Oregon in regards to the psilocybin equity bill. So, um, at minimum, the task force that's going to be required in this bill would explore barriers that people of color face in starting psilocybin-related businesses and training retaining to the culturally specific psilocybin services facilitators and access of psychedelic sessions for low-income people and minority communities, which I think is going to be hugely important because I think the people that, you know, in in all actuality, they're needing these services the most, a lot of them are military and a lot of military fixed income end up being lower-income people and they need to be able to have access to these services. Uh, Members would also need a general study to develop the psilocybin research-specific licenses and a regulation of research partnerships that explore the efficacy of psilocybin therapy and expansion of access to psilocybin services. They would be tasked with further looking into psilocybin equity program to provide resources to communities with barrier to accessing health care to increase numbers of culturally specific practices and people who are low income uh, to hold these licenses. The wide-ranging equity study would be used to inform regulatory or legislative decisions around reducing fees for disadvantaged communities, grants for those individuals who receive financial and technical assistance to enter the market, and a proposal that psilocybin services centers dedicate 
to, dedicated to a minimum percentage of psilocybin treatment sessions to clients who are low income. And this is just huge. I'm really proud of Oregon for this. Uh, Mason Marks, a member of Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board that was established under the voter-approved 2020 initiative, um, told Marijuana Moment that the bill is very important because Measure 109 did not focus on equity as much as it should have, whereas emerging psychedelic legislation in other states, including neighboring Washington, makes equity a central concern. Oregon has been a trendsetter with respect to psychedelic policies, he says, but when it comes to equity, many have fallen behind. Looking ahead, Mark said future legislation should allow at-home psilocybin services for people unable to travel to a service center and more affordable and accessible training opportunities would be for facilitators of psychedelic sessions. For now, under the new current bill, the task force would also need to investigate the possibility of creating a psilocybin equity office in this state. Members would be required to submit its reports to its findings by November 1st, 2022. This would not be a permanent task force, and the aforementioned requirements would be repealed as of January 2nd, 2023, under the current measure. The existing psilocybin advisory board is set to issue recommendations on implementing the program to the state regulators this March. Members of the board released the initial report in July that reviews hundreds of studies in psilocybin as required under the state initiative, but they were pressed for time and said they would be working with a recently established psychedelic research center at the Harvard Law School to more thoroughly cover this subject. Super interested to see how this shakes out. Makes me um, remember that it's Friday and say, you know, if you if you're a, a, a consumer of psilocybin, maybe today is uh, fuck it. It's Friday. Let's take a macro dose. So I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Susan, you got to play Ice Cube today. What's the good? Bro, day? we can't. We can't. I can't. I can't. Get- you have to sing it, Jason. But my main point to this headline, super important to think about the proposition of putting social equity in these bills early on, um, you know, and I'm curious to see uh, if there is focus around the, you know, the indigenous community on this. Um, I'm not saying that it's the only community that needs to be focused on in this, but I definitely believe that there needs to be a uh, strong focus because the indigenous community has been kind of carrying psilocybin um, and and other entheogens in a big way. And I just want to, you know, and the, uh, the Indigenous community falls under both a community that's been representing psilocybin and entheogenic plants, but also, um, unfortunately, falls into that lower income bracket. So I'm really hoping that the Indigenous community here in Oregon, there's a a lot of uh, Native uh, people in Oregon. So I do think that this is going to be a really important thing to be offered um, in in Oregon, Washington, I mean, California too. Um, Yeah, so I'm excited to see and hopefully that uh, psilocybin rolls out a little bit more woke than we did. Thank I you appreciate for that. that, Nicole. It just, it's exciting. There's just so much trauma that can be managed. You know, we've had a couple of years of trauma and uh, the psilocybin would be an important uh, part of treating that. So we're really excited this is moving forward. All I wanted to add, and I appreciate you bringing it. I mean, I think it's better to have a, you know, an equity effort than no equity effort, but I don't think that we should think that psychedelics is going to be any better than cannabis on this for a lot of reasons. But I do think that by design, the Oregon bill is very good because it is broadly defined. It is like a medical model, but a psilocybin services center doesn't have to necessarily be um, a doctor. So I do think that there's room for equity by design. And I think the the, the current and future of equity in these drug bills need to be um, thinking that way, you know, like how do we build in equity? I'm not saying we shouldn't also have equity coalitions and we shouldn't also try and target social equity, but um, I think it, it's 
it's not been effective in cannabis. And I, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to kid ourselves, but I appreciate you bringing the story. Definitely not uh, kidding ourselves uh, on my thoughts or hopes for it, but I feel like honestly, you know, I think psychedelics are kind of the next step as far as, you know, awakening and opening that third eye for people to really see what, um, you know, the right thing is. And I think there might be um, just a, the, the responses that I've seen as far as people that you would never fucking expect um, pushing for psychedelics for, um, you know, medical use, I think there, I don't think that it's going to for sure be better, but I think that we might have a slightly better chance because we've gone through so many pains. And I, I, you know, I told my grandma the other day, I was like, my next wave is, is psychedelics. And I said, just so you know, I wanted to give you a heads up, you know, so you don't see me in the newspaper like it was with weed. And I said, it's going to be similar to weed, except this time I know better. And I think there's a lot of people like you, Victoria, or like, you know, everyone on this panel that have been through the ringer with cannabis that I think are going to be able to apply a little bit more insight as we go through, because we were literally just feeling it out blind. And so this is the first time I think that we're going to really be able to approach this with, um, you know, a real eyes wide open approach. I hope you're right. But there are people right now that are like, we're going to push psychedelics without the psychedelic. Let's research our way out of psychedelics and still get the medical oh, benefit. I, I hope you're right. Nicole. That'll still happen. I don't think that that won't happen. It's America. That will still happen. I just think that there might be a slightly better chance for more opportunities in psychedelics. I don't think that America is not going to fuck it up and shit the bed like it always does. Amen. I think that there is <laughs> a slightly better chance for there to be a slightly more uh, amount of people getting an opportunity in psychedelics. Uh, and, and I'm saying slightly, not, not drastic, slight. But and any and you know, I wish Gretchen was here because every little bit counts is one of the things that she always t- tries to tell us. And I'm like, no, it's not enough. And she's like, you got to take something at some point. And I feel like, you know, if we could get a little bit better, um, and you know, when we roll out the next uh, psychedelic product, uh, maybe it'll be a little bit better. And then before you know it, we'll have legalized, you know, drugs in a, a way that America can be more woke in general. And of course, we're gonna shit the bed and we're gonna capitalize and we're gonna treat people like shit over it. But maybe there'll be a slightly larger percentage of people not being treated that way. Do we know if if MAPS is uh, working in Texas? I'm worried about Texas. I think Texas might legalize uh, psychedelics before cannabis, and it's because uh, they need high-paying jobs to replace the oil jobs that are going away, and I see them just bringing in pharmaceutical companies and yeah. I see them bringing in, to, in cannabis a lot sooner than we think, only because Texas controls the majority of the water in the United States. So they've got the agricultural ability to really, you know, do big things um, and a decent season for these crops. So I, I, I see it, I see them both coming, in my personal opinion. But I also worry about Texas anyways. America. <laughs> All right. Well, enough about my psilocybin, and I, I hope everyone has a – at least a microdose today to enjoy their their day at the end. Um, and up next, we have Miss Liz Rogan, our pinup girl, the biodynamic biologist, botanist, and the cannabis health liaison. What do you have for us today, Liz? Thank you, Nicole. Happy Friday, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My story comes from Spectrum News, uh, New York One, out of New York City by Bobby Cusa. The headline reads, legal or not, a cannabis dispensary is expanding across the city. So Empire Cannabis Clubs in Chelsea, New York, looks just like a dispensary. They have glass display cases with flower edibles, pre-rolls, vape carts, and other products in a sleek retail setting. On its website, Empire says that they are the city's first cannabis dispensary. But the owners of the business say they're actually not selling cannabis. They are selling club memberships. So if you want to buy any THC products, according to Lenora Elfin, 
Ilfond, Empire's co-owner, you need to uh, get a daily pass or a monthly membership. The daily pass is $15 or $35 for a monthly membership. Um, Empire operates as a not-for-profit membership club. In order to uh, jump through these loopholes in state law, which allows for possession and use but not for sale of cannabis, um, the state's still working to develop the regulatory framework and licenses, which is expected to take up to a year, if not longer. The Office of Cannabis Management has uh, just been formed in the last year, and they're holding a series of virtual public forums as they draw up regulations. But in the meantime, business owners like Elfond have stepped up uh, to meet the burgeoning demand. And so he had opened... or. Elf, I'm not sure. Um, Elfond opened his location in Chelsea in September and has a second location in the Lower East Side that just opened earlier this month. And now he's going to deliver to some Manhattan zip codes. He also says two new locations in Brooklyn are on the way and one is going to have an outdoor smoking area. So it sounds like dispensaries and lounges combined. But in the absence of regulations, Empire does maintain certain protocols they want you to know. <laughs> the front door is manned by a security guard. You can only be 21 to get in. Um, they do check your IDs and they say their product is rigorously tested. Of course, they won't say where it comes from because cultivation for commercial purposes is still um, illegal in the state. Um, the Office of Cannabis Management says Empire and other businesses like it are illegal. They say the unlicensed sale of cannabis remains illegal in New York State, and the state will work with its partners and government to enforce the law. They said, we encourage New Yorkers not to partake in illicit sales where the product may not be safe. Um, and those attempting to sell illegally must stop immediately. Um, basically, they are focusing on looking at operators participating in the unlicensed illegal sale or so-called gifting of cannabis products, which is um, would significantly jeopardize any operator's ability to receive a license in the legal market. So it's kind of like a warning. So this gifting term, I know Susan had brought it up in another story. It's kind of been bopping around a bit. But the gifting is a reference to businesses that sell art and other products to consumers and then provide cannabis as an accompanying gift. So um, there's other operators like Uncle Bud's Mobile Trailer in Harlem who offer cannabis in exchange for a donation. Um, Steve Zissou, who is the Empire's attorney, says the membership model is, says it's squarely on the right side of the law and they have not heard anything from the state authorities. He says we're in complete compliance with the law. Um, if this is a club that is banded together to acquire what they can acquire legally. Um, and all they're doing is providing the location and the means for them to do that. Well, it seems like they're pretty bold to be advertising this. I mean, in California, we have seen this trap shop style for a long time uh, coming out of the uh, medical legacy market. So I'm wondering how long can this continue on? You know, um, in Santa Barbara, where I live, our regulators said they need the tax money for enforcement. But we find ourselves he here still dealing with competition from the illicit market while millions of tax dollars are collected. So... Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about all this gifting. And uh, so this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Uncle man. Bud's mobile trailer doesn't sound like it will ever be legal. Oh, man, New York. So many they thoughts will on hustle this and make club. a buck. You know, it sounds like you're getting a lot more than what you paid for. Victoria, give us a thought, a quick thought. A quick thought is that um, it seems like they're trying to operate under this private social club model that I've talked about. But private social clubs have to be for social purposes and can't be for commercial. And they're definitely towing the line. Sounds like a trap. It's a trap. It is known as the trap. All right. So <clears throat> he's the cannabis industry's longest continuous 
running retailer and his conservative values have recently come into question as he's been accused of being vegan. Sounds more green than red to me. And that's more than one thing in common that he's got with the QAnon shaman. You don't have to worry. (laughs) I don't judge. I just talk shit. Next is the state of cannabis' very own Kaiser Brose, Jason Beck. Oh, that was very, very funny, Rico. I'm glad you had had a good one today. Thank you guys so much. And today, my story comes out of New York State, where the New York State Marijuana Board plans to release regulations by the spring, or so they say. Consuming marijuana in New York has been legal for nearly a year, but there is nowhere to legally purchase the plant, except for out on the streets, but that's not legal. Thursday night, the heads of the state's New York uh, Cannabis Board said, uh, excuse me, Thursday night, the heads of the of the state's New York State Cannabis Board said she understands the question is on the mind of plenty of New Yorkers. Everyone wants to know, when will there be adult sales in New York? We are working very hard to activate the MRTA, the Marijuana Recreational Tax Act. And while we want to get the market up and running as quickly as possible, it's critical we take time to get it right, said Termaine Wright, the chair of the Cannabis Control Board of New York. White was speaking at one of the office's cannabis management community outreach meetings. The OCM released data regarding cities and towns opting out of allowing cannabis stores and lounges to open in their communities. Of all New York City's towns and villages, 34% opted out. Most of who uh, did opt out were communities with smaller populations. The total population of those municipalities in the 34% con, uh, con- consists of around 118,000 people. That's less than half of half of a percent of all New Yorkers. The state will unveil those in late winter or early spring. Once those are announced, there will be a 60-day period for public comments to be heard. Um, the earliest any business could apply for a license to sell cannabis would be after that 60-day window. And the OCM says it is actively training more police officers to be DREs or drug recognition experts. They added they are continuously searching for a device that can be used to detect if someone is under the influence of cannabis. Well, guess what, NYPD? You're going to be looking a long time for that because that's just is just not in the near, near future for you guys. And New York, I hope, I wish you luck on this uh, releasing this near spring. I have a feeling that this date is ultimately going to get pushed back because I don't think you guys are going to have the muster to get it done that fast if you guys want to actually do it right. But time will tell, and we shall see. And otherwise, there's a fluent trap market out in the streets of New York right now. So go and go a bag from your local weed truck. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Yeah, New York's doing a bunch of listening sessions and making up some regs, and eventually they'll get around to making up some permits, and we'll see what happens. I can't wait to see what happens with that lawsuit with Hochul and MedMen. You want to say nothing? Nothing's going to happen. She's going to be fine. She did nothing wrong. Nicole, how do you uh, pronounce the the governor's name? Hochul. Hochul. No, I think the longer it takes for the regulations uh, to be promulgated and adopted, the more of a foothold that the unlicensed um, market will have and will further undermine whatever regulated market is devised. We've got Dr. Bong Bong up from the audience. Dr. Bong, did you want to weigh in? Yes, I was just going to say, New York, we we better get it together because... Time to hold still for no man, no industry, nobody. And as we as we go get closer to 2023, 
uh, everybody better have their stuff together because, like you said, we're we're in the middle of the, the largest city of cannabis consumption in the world. So we better get together as registered organizations. Brian, uh, we're about at time, so it, ten seconds. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm just I'm from New York also, and uh, it is it is the wild wild west out here. The they tell us every week that they're going to have regulations and they just keep delaying, keep delaying. Like the like uh, Dr. Bong just said, the market out here is insane and the cops and the fire departments are not doing anything about it. it the hammer is going to drop on all these people and they don't think they realize how much pain they're going to be in when it does. Hammer time. Sing it. Somebody well, the thing it. is, is the taxes, it's all, they're going to get them on the taxes because you know they're not paying taxes on this stuff that they're going. That's how they're going to get you. Uh-oh, 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 uh-oh. What happened? <laughs> what just happened? That was him Taxi. singing. Here comes the hammer. Oh, 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 <laughs> you asked for somebody to sing it. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, Operation Hammer Strike. Victoria, did you want to grab the last word? No, no, no. Let's keep going. All right. Keep it trappy, New York. Keep it trappy. You know what? We're about at the half hour mark. Say that again, Jason. It's actually food truck trappy. All right. Not in L.A. Okay, we are going to relight this room, so grab your lighters, grab your bongs, grab your consenting adult partner, and let's relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in the State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Next, we have Miss Victoria Littman. She's a graduate scholar at Georgetown Law, focusing on cannabis and psychedelics, our very own taxivist. What do you have for us, Victoria? Thanks for the intro and good afternoon from soon to be very blizzardy Rhode Island. Um, I guess I guess we're on like a New York. There must be a lot of New York news. Something's happening in New York. I guess they legalize. So my story today also comes from NBC News 10 out of Albany. And the headline is, Expanded Program Allows Doctors More Discretion with Medical Marijuana in New York State. So I wanted to actually give some good news out of the Office of Cannabis Management, or OCM, as we've been talking about. Um, This week, they expanded the medical program to allow certification for medical marijuana for any condition if the doctor believes it can treat or benefit such condition. So part of this expansion also included an official launch by the OCM of their new certification and registration system since medical shifted from the Department of Health to the Office of Cannabis Management as a result of the passing of the MRTA last spring. The expansion of medical actually is even more relevant when you take into account that under the MRTA, the right to personal cultivation will kick in much more quickly for medical patients rather than adult use. So although the OCM, as we've been talking about, is not surprisingly behind on getting out the medical home grow regs, um, they were supposed to be effective six months after the bill passed, which would have been September, but the proposed rigs were not introduced until October, and they just went through a public comment period, which ended January 18th. So hopefully we'll have approved regs for medical personal cultivation sometimes this spring. 
by comparison, uh, adult use personal cultivation will not be permitted until after the OCM issues additional regulations, which are commented on and then finalized, which the law says must be no later than 18 months after the first adult use retail sale. So they still have to license all the recreation or all the adult use dispensaries. Um, and then 18 months after the first sale actually happens is when they're required to have these adult use regs. So in terms of home cultivation. So that really means in practice that home grow for adult use won't be legal for at least another two years in New York. So that brings me to why I think this headline is really good news. Although it's bullshit that adult use home grow won't kick in for a long time until after sales start and that the limit is still six plants a person, it's a good thing for patient access that it is easier than ever to get a med card in New York and that you will be able to grow medically before you can even purchase adult use. In a lot of states where adult use passes, the medical program disappears, which is bad for patients, especially pediatric patients who have diminishing access and less protections of their rights to use in schools and in hospitals. So although de the delayed home um, growth for adult use is not ideal, I'm starting to think that maybe it's a good thing for the future of medical cannabis in New York. Um, now, if only we could get widespread insurance coverage. So I would love to hear from any of my fellow correspondents or anyone listening. Have other states done this approach of allowing home grow in waves? Do we think that this can help save New York medical? Um, looking forward to hearing from you. I'm Victoria Lippman with the State of Cannabis News Hour. Hey, Victoria, thank you for bringing that story. New York's medical program has been absolute crap because they really didn't allow uh, sale of good cannabis. It was very restricted to extracts that were limited and blah, It got blah, better. Blah. It got better. I so was a I, patient there for six years, and it actually got so much better. But not to, not to give it any credit or air, I know you can only get ground flour, and it was boof, but like it got so, so much better. Sorry, just as a patient to experience yeah. that. No, I'm excited that it got better. I'm excited that they did home grow, and I'm excited that you can smoke it anywhere. So this uh, this is excellent news for the people of the state of New York who just want to grow their own and smoke it. Get a card. The part that I like the most is that allowing uh, physicians to um, prescribe it or recommend it for any condition they think will work. So I think it expands uh, patients' access to the plant when they allow their health care provider to make the decision versus the politician. I'm Dr. Felici, and I'm done speaking. That's exactly what I was chiming off of, too. At least it's any condition as opposed to them restricting it like uh, lower southern states have as well. Doc, you got me. Um, as well, I think that uh, Anna keyed on a key. Uh, the medical scene is getting pushed to the side for the money scene if you're going to allow businesses before actual accessibility. Last word for Dr. Bong. Dr. Bong, I muted you because you were loud. You need to unmute. Sorry, I just wanted to let you know that we actually do have whole flour here in New York. So we're not just ground flour anymore. We have whole flour too. Is it good flour? TBD. <laughs> not as good as you can get at the Chelsea dispensary. Keep it right? a buck. <laughs> not the Empire Club or whatever that place but is Victoria, called. But Victoria, did the weed even get you lit, man? No, but the, I mean, when I first moved to New York in 2016, they had like isolated tea. I could get like like concentrates in ratios. Like, I don't even know. It wasn't. And then as I was there longer, I could actually get like strain based, cultivar based like concentrates. Did, so as a patient coming from California, joke. it was that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just passionate. <laughs> it's the black out of Brooklyn. I'm passionate. Her, for those that don't know, her last name is Litman. So Omar, did, it looked like you wanted to make the last comment. Or no, Omar? Yes, no? Now pass. Okay, let's keep smoking the news.
Pass that duchy. <laughs> All right, so some call her Captain Planet, as she smoked herb on five continents while doing good deeds to clean up the environment. From lighting a fatty on the South Pole, uh, post-radioactive waste cleanup, she's also a black belt in Okinawan Goju Ryu and is a self-proclaimed word ninja. From licensed apps to popular cannabis guides, currently reporting from Provincetown, the cannabis gay artist beach vacation mecca of just the tip of Cape Cod. Up next is Anna Mead. What you got for us, Anna? Thank you for that great introduction, Rico, and happy Friday. Uh, My headline comes from Mary Jane. Thailand becomes the first Asian nation to decriminalize cannabis and home grows. Welcome aboard, Thailand. Thailand basically just legalized weed. Thailand's deputy prime minister and public health minister, who are actually the same guy, announced on Tuesday that the Narcotics Control Board will remove cannabis from its list of controlled drugs. Removing it from the list will effectively decriminalize the plant and allow adults to grow their own cannabis at home. The move makes Thailand the first Asian nation to take such a step. But serious legal questions remain surrounding what is and is not permitted, including what's considered recreational or commercial use. Newton Charn V. Rakul, who serves as both Thailand's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Public Health, said that the decision will allow Thai residents to grow their own cannabis after notifying the government. The nation's food and drug regulator has previously stated that homegrown marijuana cannot be sold, bought, or otherwise traded for commercial purposes. The AP reported that lawyers and law enforcement officials were all unsure whether individuals could still be arrested for possession of cannabis in right of this policy change. After being signed, the change will take place in 120 days. This week's decision was met by measured joy in Thailand's cannabis consumers who currently face punishments up to 15 years in jail for mere possession. Other countries in the region impose even fiercer penalties in Singapore, a man was sentenced to death in October for trafficking two pounds of weed. Charneval has been one of Thailand's most visible advocates for cannabis. In 2019, he campaigned on the principle of legalizing cannabis would be economically beneficial for the country. His party's promotional posters even featured a cannabis leaf design. Uh, Thailand became the first South Asian nation to legalize medical use back in 2018. The move paved the way for the health ministry to open some 500 cannabis clinics and public hospitals by the end of 2021. 60% of state-operated hospitals, including locations in every Thai province, are now home to a cannabis clinic. The clinics even dispense cannabis seized by illegal traffickers so long as the trafficked bud passes quality testing. In 2020, Thai officials announced that home growers would be authorized to cultivate low-THC hemp for infusing in cosmetics, food, and other personal health care products. In Bangkok on Tuesday, cannabis consumers massed up, rolled up, and marched to United, States, United Nations headquarters to celebrate the news. I'm excited for the revival of Thai stick. It was one of my favorite things growing up. I'd love to hear what the uh, rest of the correspondents have to say. This is Anna reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Anna, do we have any idea of how they changed, how they came to make us an abrupt um, about face? Uh, the, this guy, this deputy prime minister, he's been campaigning on it, and he's been pushing this forward. He thinks it would be good for business. Uh, as I think as a lot of people vacation in Thailand, that uh, vacation and weed go very well together. Absolutely. Yeah, when I, 
I think uh, Thailand is going to become one of the global centers for cannabis travel. I'm excited about that. Thailand was one of my favorite vacations I ever went on. And I played the game of like how expensive it is to get a smoking in public ticket versus smoking in your hotel. I didn't do either because I was fucking terrified after I talked to one of my friends. And so I was able to find some hash that we like put into food and ate, but I was terrified to smoke. I was so this is exciting. I was going to say the opposite. Like this doesn't surprise me. Like if you go to the Thai islands, they got reggae bars, full moon party. Yeah. I mean, this is already culture. It's dangerous but it's culture. Kosamui go to the rock bar yeah. they have pretty good Ooh. bud and uh fresh mushrooms that they will whip up into a smoothie. Mushroom mountain on Copanyan. I mean it's like already culture there. It's oh, fully on brand for Thailand right? Thailand is all about pleasure. This is perfect. It's dead on. Yeah. You also used to go to be executed if they found you with weed so as somebody who doesn't want to get uh, executed in another country rather than deported. I, I definitely was a little scared. Yeah, that's why I, I, I know that this is all about having a good time. So I was just wondering what made the people in charge who, who were ahead of the executions and whatnot would, would change their mind. I'm going to guess. It, well, yeah, it's, it, seemed, yeah. it seemed to me like <laughs> most of the people in Thailand uh, were entrepreneurs. They had to create their own jobs. And the, at, at, in the beginning, they were letting, I think they're letting anybody grow it uh, but in the beginning, you had to sell the bud to a medical establishment, and you could only keep the roots and the leaves and the stems. So, Yeah, their medical is well-developed and well-coordinated with the hospital system. It's all fun and games until someone gets executed. Getting it real, Jason. Thank you. There's access in every single province and 500 cannabis clinics throughout the country. So that's great. Access to dirt weed. Shout out to Thailand. All right. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Anna. And I am very excited to announce our next correspondent, Maggie Wilson. She's the author of Sterling Publishing, Cannabis and Wellness Coordinator, and the CMO at Fruit Slabs. Maggie, what do you have for us today on this amazing Friday? Hi, Nicole, and thank you so much for the introduction. Wait, 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 wait. This is your first day, right? Yes, it is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the team. Thank you so much. All right, all right, all right. Well, unfortunately, it looks like reefer madness propaganda has maintained a hold across the globe, and the good fight for cannabis education continues. Rotherham Member of Parliament says town is in fear of cannabis gangs. Jason Beck, you're going to love this. Residents in, in parts of South Yorkshire town are living in fear of gang warfare as groups fight to produce cannabis at an industrial scale, the Member of Parliament says. According to Rotherham um, Labora MP Sarah Champion, areas of town have even suffered blackouts as illegal cannabis farms overwhelmed the power network. Uh, Ms. Champion says the impact of the drug gangs on uh, the town is horrendous. South Yorkshire police said since October, the force has closed down more than 50 cannabis farms in Rotherham. Ms. Champion said the effect of cannabis farms had on parts of Rotherham was twofold. Firstly, from the antisocial behavior associated with it and the criminal gangs having turf wars. Record numbers of people were now being prosecuted across Yorkshire in a government crackdown on cannabis use, according to the Home Office figures. Since 2004, recorded offenses for possession, not violent crimes like the gang activity they are claiming, 
Cannabis has topped more than 5,000, reaching a peak of 8,000 in 2021. Tom Smith, Assistant Director for Community Safety at Rotherham Council, said the authority prioritized, quote, dealing with these issues. He said the council worked with the police and other agencies to reduce the prevalence and impacts of drug-related harm and that it was a national issue. A multi-agency plan was in place in Rotherham and additional funding has been made available, Ms. Smith said. Quote, I want drug gangs to see Rotherham as an inhospitable place, she said. It says that Rotherham may be like some places, it sounds like Rotherham may be like some of the places in the U.S. that have really backwards views on cannabis. What do you all think? It looks like cannabis regulation is a long way off for our brothers and sisters in the U.K. Can you imagine English cannabis gangs? Or does that sound more like reefer madness propaganda? This is Maggie reporting from Long Beach for the State of Cannabis. I remember hearing about this when I was in the UK, them talking about the, 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 the reefer gangs and whatnot. And then I watched some prison shows about the prisons in the UK, and I would believe that it's real. You know, I think it's the world is a safer place when the chaps are smoking cannabis than if they were smoking meth. 100%, Omar, 100%. I'd like to, one thing that I didn't find out that I would like to find out is all of these cannabis possessions that they have, that they have on this chart uh, within the article. I'd like to know a little bit more about what happened to those people and if they're still in jail or in prison for these possessions of cannabis offenses that they're holding. So definitely looks like we still have a lot more work to do globally. Well, their leader sure likes to party. So what's up, UK? Yeah, yeah. Uh, shout out to Boris. <laughs> what you, would you guys call him? What did, what did you and uh, Gretchen call him? Like, um, he's, he's sly like a fox, cunning as a fox. He's amazing. Shout out to Boris Johnson. Have you partied with him, Jason? No comment. Have you given him a ride on the plane? No comment. He, he's, he's not Donald Trump. He just plays one <laughs> in the UK. But he gets it done in the UK. He gets it done UK stylishly. Boris Alago. That's a good alias. Let's keep smoking the news. <laughs> all right. So um, <clears throat> our next correspondent does it all. He's not only the founder of a boutique transactional cannabis law firm, a legal publisher, author, Ganjier also. And um, he is also a practitioner of high-style Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So don't get caught fucking up the rotation around him and be surprised if he breaks the wrist and walks away. Omar Figueroa, what you got for us this morning, my brother? Not many wrist locks, but um, happy Friday, everyone. My story is from the California Department of Cannabis Control, and the headline is the DCC orders recall of packaged cannabis flour due to mold contamination. This group is that California's Department of Cannabis Control, the DCC, has ordered a mandatory recall after identifying a batch of packaged cannabis flour contaminated with Aspergillus niger, which is black mold. Consumers who purchase Claiborne Company flour are urged to check their packaging for their UID and batch numbers listed in the press release and dispose of the flour if affected. To date, no illnesses have been reported. DCC is currently investigating the cause of the contamination. Uh, the recall affects one batch of packaged cannabis flour, so that's 50 pounds, sold in various size jars between November 2021 and January 26, 2022. And the strain is Headbanger, and the brand name is Claiborne Company. 
Um, no other brands or Claiborne company batches are implicated by this recall. DCC encourages consumers who purchase Claiborne company headbanger flour during the affected time frame to check their packaging. And if it matches, they should dispose of the flour or return it to the cannabis retailer where it was purchased. Aspergillus niger, a fungus commonly known as black mold, is a contributor to post-harvest decay of fresh fruit, nuts, cereals, and oil seeds. According to the CDC, most people breathe in aspergillus spores every day without getting sick. However, people with weakened immune systems or lung diseases are at higher risk of developing health problems due to aspergillus. The contamination was discovered as a result of information sharing between a third party and DCC. Samples from multiple retailers were independently tested through DCC's cannabis testing laboratory and were confirmed to contain aspergillus. DCC is currently investigating the cause of the investigation. Um, you know, my take on this is how did this product make it past testing, which is supposed to test for microbial impurities and in particular for Aspergillus niger, which is the black mold. The lab who certified this product needs to be under investigation too. Uh, you know, to me, this is like one of the um, rare circumstances where um, regulation is better than an unfettered free market. And that's in terms of product and consumer safety. So this is like, you know, the, one of the few benefits of regulation. So the fact that it happens so seldomly and that the uh, Department of Cannabis Control, this is a once in a blue moon press release for them about a product recall, um, you know, may mean that they're going to start um, more uh, rigorous testing. Um, the headline is DCC orders recall of packaged cannabis flour due to mold contamination. This is Omar Figueroa reporting from Northern California for the State of Cannabis News Hour. So, Omar, the, the, a third party alerted the DCC, and the DCC went and retested this product. Is that what happened? Yes, and they retested it at their own testing lab because, you know, I think that's an interesting point of the story is that the DCC now has its own in-house testing lab. So right. they don't have to rely on external lab results because many of the labs, um, you know, are not entirely rigorous because being a rigorous lab means that, they're not going to be selected for testing. The loose labs are the ones that get chosen. I definitely have an opinion on this. Um, I actually operate uh, a distribution company, and I run the f full facility in the way of making sure that everything is in final form, even cannabis flower. Uh, there are a lot of testing companies in the state of California that still interpret the regulations um, in the looser way of you could COA bulk product. And as a consumer safety issue, that just doesn't fucking make sense. If we're actually going to COA a product, it needs to be in the packaging that it would be going out in, ready to go out. Because if you COA bulk product and you move it from place to place to place, and it's now open, wide fucking open in a place that maybe is having construction and Aspergillus niger might be in the fucking ceiling when they're doing construction and it falls out and now it's dirty, but it already passed COA, it can then get put into a fucking jar and sent out. So for the fact of the matter, the way that we're running testing right now to be able to keep this from happening, we will unfortunately have to close that little loophole. We've got That's a really good point about how the testing needs to be late, later down in the You cannot see away bulk flour. It does not fucking make sense. Yeah. Agreed. We've got Luke Medina up from the audience. Luke, did you want to weigh in on Omar's headline? Yes. Um, I also read that article and he just mentioned a good point that it needs to be tested later in the pro in the chain because 
it gets tested early on, but just like in the grocery industry with produce, uh, those spores are in the air naturally. That could get that contamination could happen after the testing process. But you also bring up a good point that we need to lock down on some of these testing facilities. So I just wanted to bring up kind of play devil's advocate on that. And there needs to be standardization of labs and surprise visits to make sure they're on the up and up. This, this is, is a gross. This is, this is a gross overreach of the DCC. No, it's not. They need to be focused. It is. They need to be focused on stifling the illicit market and not after going going after product that's already consumer been COA. Consumer safety is drastically more important than the illicit market. I'm sorry. Whether or not people get sick is a drastically more important fucking issue, Jason. Drastically. I'm with you, Nicole. Agree. Absolutely. Agree. I'm sorry. Give, give me a break, buddy. Testing is the most important thing to make sure people that are fucking using this as medicine aren't getting sick. And the idea that you can COA a product in bulk and then for six months fucking later put it into a jar, slap a label saying it's clean and it's past clean testing, and then put it into a fucking jar and sell it to people that are sick, that is not okay. I'm sorry, Jason. You are absolutely wrong I here. agree. I'm going to go ahead. I have it at the retail location. I've seen mold in product, so I agree with Nicole on that too. I'm going to hop on this one and go ahead and get to our next headline. Sorry I'm so heated on this, but Christopher Smith, you are amazing. Up next, communication strategist and the publisher of the American Cannabis Report, our very own Clark Kent Superman. Give it to us. Oh, thanks so much, Nicole. Good morning, Susan and Rico. My story today is from WSHU, a national public radio station in the fine state of Maine. Connecticut scientists use hemp to start cleaning up PFAS on tribal land in Maine. So this story has a very sexy premise for us here in the State of Cannabis News Hour that hemp can clean up the world, but it also suggests a sinister underbelly that's easy to overlook if you get too hyped about the hemp. So I'm going to paraphrase the lead, and then I'm going to dig into the details. Quote, scientists from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station are helping the indigenous Mi'kmaq tribe in Maine. They're using hemp plants to decontaminate 600 polluted acres of land. So, so far, so good. Sarah Nason, a biochemist in the experiment station, said the process is called phytoremediation. And she goes on to explain the process that we've heard Liz Rogan talk about uh, a number of times that cannabis plants are bioaccumulators. They absorb chemicals from the soil. The problem is, Dr. Nason says, she, they don't know whether the plants store the toxic stuff in the roots or draw it up into the stalks or push it all the way to the leaves and flowers and seeds or maybe possibly even rest chemicals into the air through the leaves. She could know all of this, except that prohibition kept scientists like her away from this plant with this powerful potential for the last 80 years. And there's even a rumor that hemp was used to decontaminate Chernobyl. But for the record, I don't believe that story. Uh, but this main story is happening now. Dr. Nason said the plants have had a positive effect in reducing the amount of PFAS at the test site so far. Oh, there it is. PFAS, perfluoroalkyl substances and polyfluoroalkyl substances. So what are those? The EPA website has several pages of government speak about PFAS. PFAS are widely used, long-lasting chemicals, components of which break down slowly over time. Slowly? Well, let's ask the CDC, who says on their website that they do not break down in the environment. They can move through soils and contaminate drinking water sources, and they build up or bioaccumulate in fish and wildlife. So a major source of PFAS at outdoor sites like this one is fire suppressants used at airfields. Now, how did that get on the tribal site? 
So now I'm going to read the actual first two paragraphs of the article. Scientists from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station are helping the indigenous Mi'kmaq people clean up toxic PFAS chemicals on tribal land near a former U.S. airbase. They're using hemp plants to decontaminate 600 polluted acres of land the tribe reclaimed in 2009 when the government turned over the former Loring Air Force Base. These chemicals are common in lubricants and defense manufacturing and firefighting foam that were banned for use across the country. Banned for use, toxic, do not break down, move through the soils, contaminate drinking water, bioaccumulate in fish and wildlife. And 600 acres of this shit is what was reclaimed by the Mi'kmaq tribe in 2009. On another page of the EPA website, we learn that Loring Air Force Base is a Superfund site. Not only that, it is on the national priorities list since 1990 due to this contamination. This is not a hemp story. This is a story about poison land turned over to a Native American tribe, and the government's trying to gift wrap it. Uncle Sam says Merry fucking Christmas, and I'm done speaking. The, the, Chernobyl, the Chernobyl story is true. Uh, hemp was planted to suck up the radiation. Um, anything that happens anywhere on the planet affects all of us eventually. The, the pollution in China gets here. The, uh, when they had the earthquake, the trash from J- Japan washed up on the Pacific coast of America, so it's, it's everywhere. The they only do reason know. I don't believe that Nobel, that, that Chernobyl story, is that there's no f- photographs, there's no documentation, and if it were true that it really cleaned up an, a radiated site like that, that would be a Nobel Prize-worthy kind of project. I just have never seen any evidence except for statements that it was used at Chernobyl. That's all I've ever seen in all my research. So if you've seen other stuff, I'd love to know. Well, by I don't think you can is- actually go there. David Attenborough did a great documentary about a year ago, and he was only able to be in the space for a limited amount of time because of the radiation. Yeah, I was going to say, I've actually visited, you can go to like the exclusion zone in Chernobyl in Ukraine, so I visited, but part of the whole story is that the Ukrainian government or Russian government has been lying about how much radiation was there in the first place. So then making these big claims about how hemp helped wouldn't help their story. So there's a reason why you can't find it, right? They were denying the levels in the first place the whole time. When they knew it was bad, like initially yeah. it happened. They even lied since the beginning. Well, hold on, Victoria. Victoria, you're saying the Russian government lied? The other thing is on a botanical basis, they actually do know where it accumulates because cannabis hemp has a really unique ability called roots to shoots. So it's great for phytoremediation. It can pull it up out of the soil and then actually into the buds where it's concentrated. So they do know that um, it's a great mechanism for remediation, but not so great for cannabis users. One of the things they're trying to understand in this study is how much of the plant can still be used. It's in the article about how much of the plant can still be used afterwards. So they're still trying to, you know, salvage some kind of uh, economic. You can't use any of that plant. It has to be destroyed as the waste that it sucked up out of the ground. Of course, you would think so. It's logical what you're saying, Taurus. What people don't realize is that even the leaves on plants uh, collect, you know, pesticides and dust in these greenhouses that have had other agricultural crops. They're doing all these testing. And, I mean, even just from the fans blowing around, it's it's on the plant. So, 
It's just to what extent. Well, thank you so much for that story, Christopher. We've reached the top of the hour. It's amazing how quick these 60 minutes go. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show. And thank you to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the state of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. Sorry, I, I thought it was just the tip. A little bit of shit. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.